Bible study. So we will start with the summary statement for this psalm. Psalm 110 envisions David's Lord. Descending from God's right hand. To Jerusalem, where he defeats all his enemies, and reigns over his everlasting kingdom. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 110 envisions David's Lord descending from God's right hand to Jerusalem where he defeats all his enemies and reigns over his everlasting kingdom. A simple outline for the psalm will be two parts, verses 1 to 3. The king comes to Zion. Verses 4 to 7. The king is Yahweh's priest forever. Go over that again. Verses 1 to 3. The king comes to Zion. Verses 4 to 7. The king is Yahweh's priest forever. All right, so let's go to our observations now. Um, Psalm 110 was written by David. You can see the superscription there, a psalm of David. So the superscription ascribes it to him. Uh, Aside from that, Jesus directly attributed this psalm to David in Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 43. Peter also directly attributed this psalm to David in Acts chapter 2 and verse 34. The word for psalm that's used in that superscription, uh, we've encountered it quite a bit, uh, mismar, and it's, uh, it's a word that essentially means to, to sing with musical accompaniment, um, as so often is the case um, with the psalms. There is no other musical direction, uh, direction though, um, in the heading or in the text of the psalm. There's also no occasion that is given in the heading of the psalm or in the text of the psalm for the writing of it. But the the whole psalm envisions a future scene um, that has not yet been fulfilled completely. 
to categorize this psalm, um, it is obviously a messianic psalm. It is the most quoted or referred to psalm in the New Testament. And it is clearly about Christ and his session at the right hand of God's throne after his ascension in Acts chapter number 1, after which he will return to the earth, to Jerusalem, to destroy his enemies and reign from Zion. So this is a, a future, um, future occasion that is envisioned in this particular psalm. So being, being messianic, messianic prophecy, then obviously this psalm is also what we've been calling prophetic predictive. Um, all it, when it was written, of course, all was future to David. And we have several future events, temporary, the temporary session um, of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father's throne in heaven coming after his resurrection. Um, his coming to earth to rule from Zion. Uh, the day of the Lord, uh, that future judgment on kings and nations when he returns. So it is a, is a prophetic predictive psalm. Now, Psalm 110 is the third psalm of this David group of psalms in book 5. So um, Psalms 108, 109, and 110 are a group of David psalms. There's another group of David psalms a little later in book 5 that we'll get to as we move along. Um, psalm 108 looked forward to the new conquest of the land. Psalm 109 prayed imprecation against the enemy and enemies in anticipation of their condemnation. And Psalm 110 envisions the victory over all enemies through the anointed king who gathers Israel to himself. So obviously there's a, there's a continuous theme that's, that's running through those psalms and connecting those psalms together. Uh, and remember, book five started with um, the um, themes of, of exile and, and gathering of, of Israel and the land and such. Now, being a messianic psalm and um, maybe outside of uh, Psalm 22, it might be considered the premier messianic psalm in, in the psalms. Uh, but it's obviously going to have connections with other Messianic Psalms, and in particular, Psalms 2, 8, 45, and 72. So there are particular connections. Probably the, it's the most strongly connected with Psalm 2, um, but it is, also has connections with these other, these other Messianic Psalms. Outside of the book of Psalms, this psalm has obvious connections with First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 7 to 14, um, which is the Davidic covenant. Um, so obviously when you, when you read 1 Chronicles um, 17 uh, and then you read this psalm, this psalm is David's vision of the fulfillment of God's covenant with him. So David is, is seeing this vision of this figure whom he calls his Lord, um, who is sit down at the right hand of Yahweh in heaven, uh, who will come to the earth and will conquer all of his enemies, and so on. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 110, um, the structure of the psalm is around two divine oracles. Now, remember, 
Divine oracles, that's when we've got direct speech from God. And so that occurs in verse 1 and in verse 4. And so that sort of structures the psalm around those divine oracles. And we don't, that's not extremely common. You don't, you know, every other psalm doesn't have a direct um, speech from, from Yahweh like that. So that, it, that is uh, obviously the most, most prevalent. Uh, the psalm also uses quite a bit of imagery. So we get this imagery of this, of this Davidic figure, uh, king, priest, and warrior um, in this psalm. And we get a lot of high imagery statements, like in verse 3 and in verse 7. And in fact, the, the imagery is such that, it, that it's even, those, are, those statements, we'll look at them as we, as we go along, but the statements themselves are probably um, some of the most widely, um, you know, interpreted in terms of statements in the Psalms and of just a wide variation of, of what people think is meant by these very um, poetic expressions that we get. All right, so we want to um, work our way through this psalm, seven verses, so not a real long psalm. I'll go ahead and read this. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. All right, so pretty short psalm. It opens up there in verse number one. That's the first divine oracle that we have. The Lord said unto my Lord, and then that statement is a, a direct speech from Yahweh. Um, the first Lord is Yahweh. That's all, Lord, all caps there. The second Lord is Adonai, um, which is a different word. So um, the Hebrew uh, does a pretty good job in, in the Hebrew of distinguishing. As I understand, the Greek translation um, is not quite as clear. Uh, uses that term kurios, which is common in the New Testament for, that's translated Lord in the New Testament. Um, so kurios is used throughout, uh, throughout the psalm. Um, not quite as clear of, of a distinction, but the Hebrew is, is using different words here and making a distinction. So you have Yahweh speaking to David's Lord. David says, unto my Lord. So Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord and says to sit at my right hand, at the right hand of Yahweh. This is, this is saying, uh, he's saying to this one to sit with him in the heavens. That's where Yahweh sits, uh, according to places like Psalm chapter 2 and verse number 4. That is where his throne in the heaven is that refers to his um, reign over the entire universe, so his, his entire creation. But you also notice this statement that it is a temporary seating. It says, sit at my right hand until, and you've got that preposition there, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So this is a temporary seating. It is, it is uh, why sometimes uh, this is referred to as a session. This is a session at the right hand. It's, it's not an everlasting sitting at the right hand. 
but it is a temporary sitting at the right hand, even though that has been um, for 2,000-some years now. So the preposition there, until, it it does relate to time. So what, what is being expressed here is sit until the time that Yahweh has appointed for his enemies to be put under his feet. Um, this is the imagery of a conquering king subjugating the conquered nation. Um, sometimes um, kings, and I think we have even reference to that, like in the book of Joshua, um, and maybe maybe one of the references in um, First Kings, maybe. Um, we, sometimes they literally, after they would have conquered a nation, um, that victorious king would, would actually... Um, take the king or the the various rulers of those nations and they would put them on the ground and literally put their foot on their neck um and it was sort of a uh, a a sign of of their a declaration of their victory and the subjugation of that king and that nation under their rule and so this is the imagery that's being used here so there's going to come a time when these enemy nations on the earth and if you remember Psalm 2, these nations and their kings are raging in rebellion against God and against his anointed son, king. That's in Psalm 2. But there's going to come a time when it's going to be time for them to be subjugated under his feet. So that is the imagery that is used in this divine declaration from Yahweh to David's Lord. And then we have verses 2 to 3. And in verses 2 to 3... David is addressing his Lord. So this is, I think the, if I remember right, I think the proper um, literary term would be an, be an, uh, an apostrophe, like he's, he's David is, isn't there. He's, he's not, you know, literally talking to his Lord, this figure he calls his Lord, but he, he is addressing him in this, um, in, this, uh, in this poem, in this psalm. So in verses 2 and 3 now, David is addressing his Lord. So that's who he's speaking to and who he's speaking about. So his Lord is going to be um, installed as king in Zion. The rod of his strength is going to go out of Zion to where he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. Now, the rod here um, is not the same word, for instance, like in Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 10, I think it is, the scepter in Judah and, and scepter that's translated in some places, which is translated rod in other places. Uh, it's not the same word, but it, it is, it's in that um, group of words, similar terms that are used to refer to something. So this rod, though, speaks again, it's a rod of his strength. It's, it speaks of his authority and it speaks of his ruling power. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, um, Zion where the king will be installed according to Psalm 2 and verse number 6. And the word for rule here that is used has the idea of subjugating or of exercising dominion over. He's going to exercise dominion over these enemy nations. And notice also what it says. It says that he's going to do that in the midst of them. So he's going to do this in Zion, in the midst of them. And that word actually in the, in the Hebrew there, it actually, that word means to be physically near or from among. So in other words, he will reign over, his reign over these nations 
will occur from among them. In other words, it doesn't occur from heaven. It occurs from Jerusalem, from Zion, God's holy mountain in Jerusalem. He will reign from the earth over these other nations of the earth. Now, the word for people that is used there in verse number 3, that is the word am, um, and it is probably the most common way that Israel is referred to. Um, it, it can refer to other nations as well. Uh, here it is used in the singular, and it refers to uh, the word again, a nation, a large kinship group. But whenever the, this word is used with the possessive, his, my, thy, it refers to Israel as God's chosen nation. So when it refer, when this word is used it, with the possessive, referring to Yahweh as the possessor, then it is a reference to the chosen nation of Israel. It, just some of the places in the Psalms where this shows up. Psalm 3 and verse 8, Psalm 18 and verse 27, Psalm 28 and verse 9, Psalm 50 and verse 7, more recently Psalm 94 verse 5, Psalm 106 and verse 4. And in some of these places where this shows up in the Psalms, um, you will also see that there's a synonymous parallelism where he will say, my people, and then say, O Israel, in, in the same expression. So there's, again, there's just no question about it. When, it. when it occurs this way, it is a reference to his people, the chosen nation of Israel. Now he says that they will be willing in the day of his power. That day of his power is, is that time of his descent. He's going to sit at the right hand in heaven until it is time for those enemies to be subjugated under his feet, and then he's going to come to Zion. Well, in that day, it says his people are going to be willing, and the word for willing describes, um, describes a free will offering, for instance, like in, in the books of the law. And what is being said here is that his people, Israel, will be ready for and will willingly gather around their Messiah when he comes. And that's where we get this, this high imagery expression. It says at the end of verse 3, in the, beauty, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. Um, if you go to commentaries on this verse, you're, you're going to see a wide range of interpretations of what this expression means. So if, though, we keep it in context with the psalm, plus in context with other imagery that relates to the same time, which would be the conversion of, of Israel at Messiah's coming, then I, I, I think that we can make sense of it. And, and um, so this is, this is my best effort at determining what this poetic expression means. So the womb of the morning is actually the e pretty easy part. Um, that actually refers to the dawning of the day. So you're talking about dawn. That's the beginning of the day. That's when the light um, dawns and, and lights up the, the ground. So the light of dawn reveals the earth that is covered with dew. So in other words, it, you know, prior to dawn, it's dark and you don't see it. The light dawns and then you can see all of the ground that is, that is covered with dew. And that is an, an imagery of Israel 
being gathered in that day and Israel being numerous and being vigorous in their restoration. And again, that agrees in the context of the psalm. It agrees with some of the imagery that we have in the prophets. Um, For instance, um, Isaiah has a couple of references um, to Israel in the exile as being like a poor, widowed woman who has no children, no family. And then, with the coming of the Lord, she is suddenly the mother of many children. You know, her, her, her tent is not big enough to hold them in one of the places that Isaiah refers to. You know, it won't, it won't hold them like they're busting out of, out of her tent. She's, she is um, uh, amazed and, and perplexed at where, where did all of these come from? So if you, if you take some of that imagery that is used of this time, again, it agrees with this. Um, but it is, again, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult statement. Um, you know, maybe I'm not right in, in what I'm seeing about that particular expression, um, but I do believe that's what it's pointing to. Then we come to verse 4 where we get the second divine oracle. So this is where Yahweh or the speech of Yahweh is reported. So we have uh, the Lord has sworn and will not repent, and then we get that declaration. Um, so... Yahweh has sworn with an oath, essentially, that David's Lord is a priest in the everlasting order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the only other place in the Old Testament that Melchizedek is mentioned. Uh, He is the man in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, who met Abraham after the slaughter of the kings. Um, And so this this makes David's Lord both king and priest and one of the um very fascinating aspects of that is that that was not permissible under the old covenant and of course that's just another reason why the writer of hebrews points out how the new covenant is better uh referring actually even to this very thing christ being a priest after the order of melchizedek not after the Aaronic and and levitical priesthood of the old covenant so he is a king and he is a priest again something that in david's day wasn't even possible something that was not permitted the priestly line was the levitical line the the ironic line for the high priesthood the kingly line was the line of of judah and you you could not have a priest that was king or a king that was priest under the old covenant Verse 5, then, we get David addressing his Lord again and speaking about his, his Lord. Um, he says that Yahweh is at, he doesn't use the word for Yahweh, but he uses the Adonai, and it's, as I understand, in the, the construction of it in the Hebrew, it's the way that it is used to refer to God. Um, he's saying that he is at the right hand of his Lord. And him being at the right hand of his Lord is to strike down the king in the day of the Lord. So no, did you notice the shift in, in the scene? So in the beginning, we have Yahweh speaking to David's Lord, and David's Lord is sat down at the right hand of Yahweh on his throne, which is in heaven. Then David's Lord comes to, um, to Jerusalem. He comes to Zion, and when he comes... Yahweh is at his right hand when he comes. In other words, it is, it's, it's an expression 
of power, of the Lord being with him. And, if, and you could relate this to 1 Chronicles chapter 17 when um, God is speaking to David and is essentially explaining to him that he was with him. And so all of his victories in battle and all of those things are because the Lord was with him. We recently went through the book of Genesis, um, seeing the Lord being with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, and what that meant for, um, you might say, the success um, that they had in life. So that's an expression here, that David's Lord, Yahweh, is with him. He is at his right hand. In other words, in other words, he is strengthening him. He is, he is um, with him to fight. So the, the David's Lord um, with, the, with God at his right hand will strike down the kings of the earth in the day of the Lord, referred to here as the day of his wrath. Now, the day of the Lord obviously refers to that future time of the coming of the Lord when he comes in, in judgment to tread down um, the nations. And the day of the Lord is referred to um, many times in the Psalms that we've encountered already. Psalm 2, 46, 48, 58, 66, 75, 76, 94, 97. This is the, the same time that is prophesied in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus Christ comes on the white horse and, and fights against the nations with the, um, with the sword out of his mouth and rules them with the rod of iron. So then we have verses 6 and 7. And verses 6 and 7 that in this psalm are where David makes two statements concerning his Lord in his, his, his coming to um, the earth. Well, first of all, he's going to judge the nations. And you see heathen there, and that's a translation of goyim, uh, which, again, is the word for nations. It is plural. Um, he will judge the nations. And his judgment of the nations will fill valleys, it says, with the bodies of the slain. Um, the word for wound there, wound is actually, uh, he shall wound the heads over many countries, is, is actually... Um, is actually a little milder than what the Hebrew actually indicates here. The Hebrew indicates here he will crush them. He will crush them. He will crush the heads. The heads refers to um, chiefs or rulers or kings. He will, he will crush them. And countries refers to land. So from all, all different lands, these rulers, these chiefs from all different lands um, of the earth, he will crush them when he comes. And then we get the, the last, which is, again, that next poetic expression. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. Uh, which is, again, another, it's not, maybe not quite as, as enigmatic as the one in verse 3. But still yet, uh, there is quite a wide variety of, of opinions about what the meaning of this expression is. Well, to drink from the streams in the lands of your enemies... <clears throat> is an act of a conquering king. So for a conquering king to in the way, and all these, remember, he's crushing these, these heads of all these countries, he's, these kings, these chiefs of all these lands, and in the way, he is drinking from the brook. And because of this, it says, his head is lifted up. Now, that phrase, the lifting of the head, 
refers to exaltation to rule. We've encountered it numerous times in the Psalms. But Psalm 3 and verse 3 is the first place that it, that it, that it refers to. And Psalm 9 and verse 3, and Psalm 9 is actually a very interesting in, in light of Psalm 110 because in Psalm 9, he's lifted up from the gates of death to rule. Um, Psalm 9, verse 13, Psalm 18, verse 48, Psalm 27, verse 6. And again, there's numerous references in the Psalm that we've seen this. So this is an exaltation to rule, lifting up of his head. So obviously the uh, implication being after he has defeated and subjugated all of his enemies because the time for that had come. The day of his wrath had come. He subjugated all of his enemies and he will reign over all the nations of the earth. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Well, Psalm 110, if we sort of look in in a big picture... It teaches us how the universal reign of Yahweh um, from heaven comes to the earth to exercise dominion from Zion. So we've noticed, and especially in Book 4 Psalms, that one of the themes that ran through the Psalms of Book 4 was this universal reign of Yahweh, his, his reign from heaven, and how, how that affected you know, things on the earth and, and, and so on. And here we're seeing... How that universal reign, how does it actually come to the earth? How, does it, how is it actually manifested on the earth in terms of judging the nations and exercising dominion over the entire earth from Zion? Well, that's what this psalm shows us. So there's a human figure, a Davidic figure, who comes from God's right hand in heaven to Jerusalem to bring judgment on enemy nations and kings and their kings from all over the earth. And the timing of this is in Yahweh's hands. He says, sit down until. And it's the same thing that Jesus refers to in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 7, that those times are in the Father's hands. It's not, it's not for you to know. And when that time comes, just as is prophesied here in Psalm 110, then Jesus will come from the Father's right hand to this earth um, to Jerusalem in particular. Now, the messianic hope of this psalm is obviously seen in the messianic prophecies of this psalm. So David's vision here is a vision of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So I'm going to read these verses, 1 Chronicles. This comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 7 to 14. Now therefore, thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, even from following the sheep, that thou shouldest be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou hast walked, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee, and have made thee a name like the name of the great men that are in the earth. Also, I will ordain a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they shall dwell in their place, and shall be moved no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness waste them any more as at the beginning. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, moreover, I will subdue all thine enemies. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee an house. And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom 
He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy, my chesed, away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. So this is the word of Yahweh to David. Psalm 110 is David's vision of this word being fulfilled. So the promise is given David that a true son of David, one of, um, of from his own body, one of true lineage descent from him, would receive the covenant mercy of David and be made king over the gathered and planted Israel to build God's house and to rule his kingdom forever. And this is what David is envisioning in Psalm 110. Well, think also about Jesus' use of this psalm. And again, this psalm is the most quoted or referred to in the New Testament of all the psalms. So we're not going to look at all those instances. I just picked out a couple of particularly um, uh, pertinent instances to, to look at. So let's look at Jesus' usage of this psalm, Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Now remember, Christ is just simply the Greek equivalent of Messiah, the anointed one. What do you think of the anointed one? Well, the anointed one is the figure in the Old Testament, the Davidic figure that was expected to come and to save Israel from her enemies. He says, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this is what the Pharisees answered, the son of David. And that was the general expectation coming out of the Old Testament and coming into the times of the new. That was the expectation among Israel. He's the son of David because of God's covenant with David. Jesus asked them this question, and he he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord, speaking of Yahweh, said unto my Lord, the Christ, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus goes on, if David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And of course, if you go back and look at that covenant with David again, God promised both of those things, that he would be God's son. He would also be David's son. He would be his Lord and his son. And of course, Matthew tells us that they could not answer his questions and they actually at that point quit asking him questions. Let's look at Peter's use of this psalm. It's on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 36. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now he's quoting there from Psalm 16. Men and brethren, this is Peter now addressing these Jews on the day of Pentecost. Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Now listen to what Peter says to them. 
Therefore, being a prophet, remember how Jesus said that David spoke in the spirit when he said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell or in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens... But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter uses Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to explain the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the right hand, and also to let them know that his, his time at the right hand of God in heaven is only for a temporary time until he comes again. So David prophesied of the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16, prophesied of his ascension in Psalm 110 and verse number 1, and prophesied of his return to rule from Jerusalem in Psalm 110, verses 2 to 7. Let's think of one other instance, and that would be in Hebrews. So the writer of Hebrews quotes or refers to this psalm more than any other New Testament book. Now remember, Psalm 110 is the most quoted or referred to psalm in the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews is the book that, refer, that quotes and refers to this psalm more than any other single book. Now he particularly, the writer of Hebrews, particularly refers to Psalm 110 verse 1 and verse 4, those divine oracles. He speaks of Jesus' session at the right hand of the Father. So like Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.13, But to which of the angels said he at any time sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Hebrews 8.1, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of of God. Not only this, he speaks of his high priestly ministry. And, and this is all through Hebrews chapter 5 to, to chapter 7. He speaks of him being made a priest after the order of Melchizedek and what that means. That, he, that it's not like the Aaronic priesthood. It's not like the Levitical priesthood. It's not like the priesthood of the Old Covenant. In fact, it's a 
better priesthood. It's a priesthood after the better covenant, which is the new covenant. It's a priesthood that is forever. He talks about how under the old covenant that a priest would only serve for his lifetime. And then he would die. And then he would have to be replaced by another priest. Well, the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which is the priest that the priesthood that Jesus was made priest after, he said, it's forever. The Lord said unto him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek here in Psalm 110. Also, he talked about how the priests under the old covenant, the first thing that they had to do was they had to make offering for their own sins. Before they could do priestly service for the people of Israel, they had to make offerings for their own sins. But Jesus, of course, being the sinless priest, never offered sins for himself, but he bore the sins of his people. Also, the priests under the old covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, they had to make those same sacrifices year after year after year after year. And what does he say about that? He says, he says that's not getting rid of sin. That's making a remembrance of sin. It's continually ever-present, year after year, making those same sacrifices. Whereas the priest, after the order of Melchizedek, the priest of the better new covenant made one sacrifice, one time for all, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. You know what else the writer of Hebrews points out? Is that under the old covenant, those priests, they never sat down. They never sat down. Their work was never done. It was never accomplished. They didn't sit down. They had to continue in their service. So you can look at those chapters, particularly in, in Hebrews, as he refers to this. Now, last of all, this vision, this prophetic vision that... David gives us, which obviously occurs after the resurrection of Christ. And again, David prophesied of the resurrection of Christ in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 16. So this is after the resurrection of Christ. He ascends to the right hand of the Father for a temporary session at the right hand. And then he comes back to earth. And when he comes back to earth, he judges the nations. He establishes his kingdom. This also agrees with the program that we find in other places of the Bible. So uh, we'll just do two references, an Old Testament reference and a New Testament reference to the same time. So Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, speaking of the Messiah. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountains shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And notice this in verse 9 of that chapter. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Same time talked about in Matthew chapter 25. This from Jesus, Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Now Jesus was on earth when he was talking about this. This was before his death and before his resurrection and ascension. But he says, when he comes, 
When he comes back, in other words, when he returns, when he comes in his glory, which means when he comes to reign, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Well, where's he going to be in the meantime? He's going to be at the right hand of the Father in heaven, which is where he is presently. But when he comes in his glory to this earth, as described in Psalm 110, then he's going to sit upon the throne of his glory, which we also know is David's throne. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And you can go on um, reading that. He's going to judge the nations, and he's going to divide the believing from the unbelieving. And the unbelieving are going to depart and go away into everlasting punishment. The believing are going to enter into the kingdom that he establishes when he comes back to the earth. So again, Psalm 110 agrees completely with these same prophecies that we get in different places. And there are more than just those. Just one instance from the Old Testament, one instance from the New. All right, let's go to application. Two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 110 helps us understand David's hope in the coming Messiah. And, and this is our hope as well. We, now, we have already seen some of these things being fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ. We've seen that he, he came the first time. We have the, the rest of the New Testament that, that continues. Um, the revelation gives us prophecy, gives us maybe some more details, um, but again, agrees with what the Old Testament um, predicted, and we see that particularly with Psalm 110. And that was David's hope. That was his hope. David was the king, and really, when you think about it, I mean, I mean he, was, he was the king of, of Israel, and yet his hope was in this coming one, in this, in this covenant that God made with him. Number two, understanding one, Psalm 110 helps us understand, once again, that we are to live in expectancy and patience. Jesus will remain at the right hand of God in heaven until the time comes for God to install him on Zion and him to reign over all the earth. Until that time comes. And just like Jesus told his, his uh, disciples there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, it's not for you to know. The Father has, has that time, that, that appointed time and season in his hand. He's in control of that. He is sovereign over that. He has already determined before the world was ever even created when that time was going to be. We don't know. We don't know. But we are to live with that expectancy. We are to live patiently, understanding. He, he may return in our lifetime. He may not. Many generations before us have passed on thinking, well, he's probably going to return in my lifetime. But he hasn't. We don't know when he's going to return. But we do know that, that he is going to return.